welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Um, we've got Kevin Holditch today at Form 3. And we're going to be talking a little bit about digital payments. We're going to be talking a little bit about what cloud-native payment processing actually means, some of the technologies that underpin that. And we've got Mr. Terraform here as well. Um, so he's going to talk to us a little bit about his book, um, so you can actually buy a copy. And we're going to talk to him a little bit about, or he's going to talk to us a little bit about some of the inner workings of Terraforms, the whys, the business cases behind that. Um, so Kevin, do you want to introduce Form 3 and yourself to us? Sure. So, hey, Elliot, first of all. So uh, thanks for having me on the show. Pleasure. Um, so yeah, so I'm Kevin. I'm the head of platform engineering at a company called Form Free. So Form Free, we are a cloud native payments platform that we've been sort of running for about four years. Okay. So what Form Free, the problem that Form Free solve is basically allowing banks a single API to connect to all payment schemes. So up until Form Free, um, banks had this issue where if a user who's got a bank account with bank A wants to pay money to another user who's got a bank account with bank B, mm -hmm. the banks needed a way to communicate this information, like who's paying who the money and making this money move. So that problem is solved by something called a payment scheme. Mm -hmm. Now, there's many instances of these payment schemes. So just in the UK, you've got FPS, which is real time. You've got VAT, which is like intraday which is like how, sorry, every three days, which is how you collect your electricity bills and stuff like that. And then moving into Europe, you've got separate instance, separate credit transfer, separate DD. So if you wanted to start like a new bank, like one of these mobile banks, then just to service Europe, you'd need to do five integrations into five payment schemes. Now, even though these schemes solve the same problem, which is moving money between sort of banks, they all solve it in a completely different way. So that's like, how do you connect to the scheme over a VPN, the internet, lease, you know, lease lines? What messaging format are you going to use? How do you handle errors? And it goes on and on and on. And um, so what Form 3 have done is we are a cloud-native, modern uh, JSON API that a bank can integrate to once. And we've got resources that abstract away all of those payment schemes. So a bank can basically create a payment resource telling us the intent of what they want to do. So they want to go, this user wants to pay this user this much money yep. on FBS. And then they send that to us and then Form 3 basically send that over FPS's rails. Okay. And then they could create the exactly the same document but change the scheme to BACs and then we'll route it over BACs. So okay. for the banks, they can go from typically probably a year to integrate into every scheme yep. to maybe one or two months to integrate with Form 3 once, and we kind of hand all of that for them. Nice. I think um, if anyone, I think anyone from an engineering perspective, maybe not so much as Lay, um, has thought of banks as fairly archaic and maybe do things of, of an age. How tough is it, if it's tough, to be cloud-native to integrate with banks or do you just operate as a if you like a separate cloud native entity and you just manage everything cloud-based from yourselves yeah so we 
so the the second one so we're basically a separate cloud native entity cloud native platform that we allow our customers to connect into um and then we provide that payment service for them as a fully managed service so like typically like you said a lot of the banks are currently doing this themselves so that requires running a lot of legacy kits they're maintaining data centers all over the place all this old technology that was written going all the way back to the 70s in some cases they have got to keep it running these payment schemes make changes every year that you have to make yourselves to keep compliant yeah so there's a lot that goes into kind of keeping these connections running and the form free offering is we provide all of that for you as a managed service. Okay. So all our customer has to do is connect to form free. Um, so we do have a couple of connections options there. So you can connect over the internet or you can connect privately on a private connection. Yeah. So we can peer to you. So you can have your transactions not going over the internet if you want. Nice. Okay. Um, you're obviously head of platform engineering. Can you just give us a, an overarching view of what that means to Form 3 or what that looks like? And there's probably a second question in there as well around how's that evolved over four years? Yeah, so I suppose, so just to go into what my role is at Form 3 first. Uh, so Form 3, we operate a DevOps model. So... We organize our engineering teams around different parts of the platform and we have, have the full sort of DevOps model where you, the developers, build a feature from like idea all the way through to testing it and running it in production and then also supporting that throughout like 24-7. So if that goes wrong at one in the morning, they get up and fix it. So... A lot of our engineering teams are aligned around different products that we offer. So products integrate into like UK payment schemes or EU payment schemes or uh, indirect um, offerings as well. Um, and then we have a couple of engineering teams that are not aligned to products and platform being one of them. So we basically handle cross-cutting concerns that uh, wouldn't fall into any other team. So that is things like looking after the service mesh, mm -hmm. DDoS protection, um, uh, like Kong, which is our API gateway, mm -hmm. um, the Terraform projects, running Terraform, um, running our enterprise Terraform sort of behind the scenes for all the rest of the engineers to use. So yep. it's like the cross-cutting concerns, but it's definitely not an old-school infrastructure team that we handle all the infrastructure and engineers just do the software and then they they make us do the infrastructure. It's not that. Yep. So engineering teams in charge of different products, they'll build infrastructure as part of that build. Yep. And we enable them to do that using Terraform, which yep. we can discuss a bit later. But um, in platform, we just handle the cross-cutting things that wouldn't fall into a kind of naturally into another team. Yeah. Question in there. It's become the norm. I know this, but... Do you like that mindset or do you think it's the best mindset to have that you build it, you run it mindset? I think it works a lot better. So I've worked in organizations in the past where we've had the opposite approach, where engineers write the software, then kind of throw it over this 
so-called virtual wall to someone sitting in a corner who has to run this software they haven't even written typically without documentation because no developer normally writes documentation and it falls in a big heap Whoa. and then try and fix it um and so when you switch that around and sort of say to people okay you're you're in charge of the full solution so um if you're running if you write a piece of software and you know that if it crashes at one in the morning, it's going to ring you, then you've probably got more incentive to stop that happening or think about the scenarios of why that could happen. Or if it does happen, you're probably going to come into work the next day and go, um, how can we stop that happening again? I don't want to be woken up at one in the morning again. But when you have this disconnect where someone else is running it, the ownership's not there. The incentive isn't there for you to fix it. So. Yeah. That's why I think that that model tends to work a lot better. Do, uh, I I get that. I think the empathy has to be there for what you've built. Do you think people can kind of be forced into being this T-shaped engineer then? If you're in a situation like Form 3 where you build it and you run it, do you have to be forced to think about both sides of the fence? Or do you think that's more a natural occurrence because you're more involved? I think it's just a natural occurrence because you're more involved. And I, I think that tends to be one of the attractions that we find why people sort of come, come to us. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of one of the reasons that we see. One is obviously that we're a cloud native platform, but running some quite cool tech, yep. like developing Go. But also I think people want that ownership and they want to be able to control the direction of things. So we, we don't kind of do micromanagement and handholding and spoon feed people into how to build solutions. We kind of take a step back from that and give engineers like the problem and then let them sort of be creative and solve the problem. And I think that all um, feeds into the DevOps model because if they can't then support that and have that, that feedback loop of when it actually crashes or goes wrong, they can then take that back and improve it. Then the model's a bit broken. So. Yeah, I think it's all just part of the same philosophy that we have. Yeah. And the engineers seem to embrace that. Um, yeah. Obviously, no one likes being on call. The thought of being on call is not maybe the best feeling, but I think it's just all part of, you know, um, when you're running a 24-7 payments platform, you just, you know, it's one of those things you just kind of have to do. And yeah. because you've got the ownership to fix the problems, I think it makes that the best it can be, basically. Yeah, uh I'd, I'd love people to comment and write some some funny times. Uh, not that they're funny, but uh, just some awkward times then of what's happened on call. So if you're listening and there's been an awkward moment, uh, please just drop a comment. I, I love reading some funny tweets about people falling over lamps, like hoovers are flying everywhere. Um, so I want to see some of that. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things that I wanted to ask around technology you touch on Go. We can yeah. come back to that. But I think payments part, you talk about it being a 24-7 service. Okay, I think it's obviously quite current what's going on with COVID at the moment. So how has COVID affected the business if it has affected the business and why? So I think day to day, it didn't really affect us at all because how we set how we've set our um company up is we've had remote working almost since the get-go 
So when in the early days, when we decided to um, obviously grow the engineering team, we had a brainstorm and we had the, made the decision that um, the early engineers were working from home quite a bit anyway. So we thought rather than compete with the same companies for the same pool of talent in the commuter belt of London, why not just cast the net to anywhere in Europe yeah. and then um, hire people remotely? Because yeah. the feeling being in that we could hire like top talent from you know Portugal, Spain and all these countries and we'd be fishing in a different pool to everyone else. Yeah. And that seems to have worked really well because we've got a lot of top talent now from all around Europe. I think the key to why it's worked for us is because um, everyone's in the same boat, working remotely using the same tools, regardless of where they are. So whether they are one mile from the office that we have in London or whether they are 2,000 miles away in Croatia, they all using the same tools and doing the same thing. So everyone feels like connected in the same way. Um, So because we'd set the company up like that, when COVID hit, it was literally like we had the announcement go out. You're not allowed to go into the office anymore. And then yeah. Monday rolled around, but we were all at home anyway. And Monday yeah. rolled around, we're all just still at home. So I think like day to day, there wasn't really any change. Okay. So the company just continued on as per normal. So yeah. from that point of view, it worked really well. I think what we have seen though, is because we are um, on a bit of a recruitment drive at the moment with the amount of work we have on and we're trying to sort of grow the team, since lockdown happened, say, whenever it was mid-March, we've now hired, I think it's around 30 people into the company. Yeah. That have, and most of them have never met any of their colleagues in real life. Okay. And think about that for a second. That's like for six months, you've been working with people that you've never met in real life. You only just chat them on Zoom. Whereas prior to that, we had this onboarding experience where we flew people in um, for like a week in the office where you'd meet your maybe your team lead and a few of your colleagues and you'd meet like a smattering of other people that happen yep. to be in the office and then you might go for drinks after work and you'd naturally kind of meet quite a few people in the company. Yep. And that's the thing that I think's really changed in that now you pretty much join your team and then other than maybe your teammates, it's hard for you to meet other people in the company. So this is something we're trying to put some thought into on how we can get in this new like lockdown times hopefully it doesn't last too long yeah how can we still get that organic part where you kind of meet people from other departments and get chatting to them and get to know them um we've run a few things with like mixed success so i think it's a problem that we're still working on um but that's kind of where the challenges lie right now so uh, is that why i've seen quite a lot of form three employees on the beach then (laughs) yeah I'm joking. I'm you joking. don't, but we have got some employees working from like Spain, like poolside apartments. Seriously, and, yeah. seriously, yeah. They I'm turn their enjoy. camera around, and they've got you can see behind them like this amazing pool, sun shining so brightly. They're like a silhouette, and you're like, like yeah, you're sitting that, there in drizzly England. That's it, and and that that mindset. Um, it was obviously a norm for you guys, but it looks like such a smart decision now. What were you thinking back then four years ago? Were you thinking this commuter bell, London, we don't want to compete? Was that an active thought or is that like a developing thought? I think it, it was It was an active thought that we didn't want to compete in the same pool of talent. 
And it was also, I think it stemmed from the original sort of four engineers at Form 3, which I was one of. We were just spending, I think we were coming in like one or two days a week. Yeah. But all of us had like between a 90 minute to two hour commute each way. So you're thinking, okay, we're, we're wasting three to four hours a day on the train, plus all the train costs. And the days we're working from home, we really noticed we were a lot more productive because yep. we could get up. We could actually do a few more hours. We were fully set up to work from home. So then when we started hiring people in these other, loca other locations, we just started coming into the office less because we were kind of on zoom with other people anyway so it seemed a bit pointless going to an office to then call someone on zoom in spain yeah so it kind of naturally evolved into people just then just working remotely um nice. and it's just like worked out really well for us in hindsight it obviously looks like an amazing decision yeah. um but i think it's you have to work hard to get the culture right when you've got like a remote first team yeah um we do have an office in london that we used to go to People could go there whenever they wanted. So if they wanted to go in there for a meeting or occasionally go in to see other people, then that was kind of a good thing. So you could have a hybrid if you wanted. But obviously yeah. now in, in full, you know, coronavirus times, you can't really do that. So Yeah, um, I think if there are people listening to this, the, you know, it, it's been going on for a long time and th there's no limitations. You can work around it. You can still be productive while you sit by a poolside I, I think it's that trust that people have to get right um to be able to do it well and from what from what i understand talking to other people is that you have to start by building that online first culture that has to start right at the start exactly otherwise if it doesn't it's very difficult to break that that that's just what I understand and what people feed into me, and clearly with you guys, it feels the same, which is good. Yeah, I completely agree that you have to build that um, that online culture because if you have a culture where really people in the office and some people work from yeah. home, then you end up with this divide where I always think like the office people have lunch together, have chats. Yeah. And without meaning to, they leave the remote people out and then yeah. you have these two groups and people feel really disconnected. Whereas when everyone's in the same boat, everyone's on Slack, on Zoom, you're, you're, you get all your colleagues on the same Zoom call to talk things through, make a decision, and then no one gets left out. Yeah. Um, so that's a really important part of it. But just picking up on your trust element, I think that yeah. is also really important as well because um, from reading through like my LinkedIn feed, there seems to be a really big divide between there's it seems like one pool of people who who just want to go to the office every day and that's their thing and they think if you're not in the office and if you know and that that's the way they want to work and they want all their colleagues to be in the office yeah. and there seems to be a bit of a mindset around that as well not necessarily you know, see you raise your hand not necessarily saying you yeah. do this but yeah. um people's there seems to be this mindset in some companies where if there's not a bum on a seat in an office, then you're not working. And if yeah. you're at home, then you're somehow like slacking off, just watching telly and, you know, whatever. Yeah. But I think you've got to get away from that and just think if an employee doesn't want to work, yeah, they can do nothing in an office. There's yeah. nothing to say they're working in an office. Like yeah. you've hired the wrong person if they're not working. It's not about where they work. Yeah. So I think if you empower your employees and give them respect and they give it back, 
Yeah. So when you just say, like, this is your task, you can work from home. And if they want to nip off early and do something, then work later, then that's fine. And if you give them that trust and that respect, what we tend to find is people seem to work longer. Like, we don't demand it, but people yeah. are really into what they do. They yeah. love the fact they've got the responsibility. They've got this lifestyle. They're into what they're doing. They're not spending hours on a train. They just naturally tend to work a bit more because yeah. they're 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 involved. So yeah. that's kind of what we see. Uh, I've seen on LinkedIn um, companies or teams being largely office based. Not so much at the moment, but are thinking about adding remote people to that team. And honestly, I don't think it will work. I'm, no. I'm happy to put my hat on that and say, I don't think it will work. In the short term, it could work. I think in the long term, it won't work. For the same reason that you said, people have conversations in person without meaning to. And you're not deliberately trying to leave someone out, but naturally over time it happens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Talk to us about those four years. So four years... Um, we've obviously heard go in there, you run on Java as well. I'm keen to understand maybe some architectural changes if there have been or complexity that's been added along the way, if there has been complexity. But I'm keen to understand what's happened from a technical perspective in those four years. Okay, so I think we have Right. So for most of the four years, we've kind of kept our technical story fairly consistent because, and I think a key to that is that we built the platform from the ground up using Terraform. Mm -hmm. so that was a key um, linchpin of how we built things from day one. So maybe just to keep, get everyone on the same page here, um, Terraform is basically an infrastructure as code tool. Yep. that allows you to, to define what you want as source code. Okay. And obviously, because it's source code, you can check that into your source control repository. And then what Terraform effectively do is you can describe the world in source code. So you can say, I want lo one load balancer and one server. Yep. And then when you run Terraform, it will look at your source code and go, okay, you want one load balancer, one server. And then it can look at, say, AWS and go, you've got nothing. So I'll mm -hmm. create you a load balancer and I'll create you a server. But then... Terraform avoids drift. So then if someone goes in and manually, say, deletes your server, yep. when you run Terraform again, it will go, you want one load balance on one server. I look at AWS. You've already got your load balancer, so I'll leave that. But the server's gone, so I'll recreate that. So yep. Terraform keeps the, the real world the same as how you've described it in your code. Okay. So that is like a really, so especially in, the, uh, in a cloud world, that's a really important tool to kind of plug into your pipeline from the get-go. Could, could you, just jumping in there, could, could you be guilty potentially if you don't know what you're doing, creating a fantasy world, as in just terraforming the hell out of everything and not really understanding what you're doing? Um, as, in, as in, could terraform just be a quick solution, right? We'll, we'll do that. We'll just apply Terraform, or or does it not really work like that? It doesn't really work like okay. that. I think to to give you a bit of an example, um, when I was writing my book, I try I was trying to play around with something in in the AWS console. So I was like, okay, I just want to set something up as an example to see how that would work. So I thought I'll have a little play in the console to set something up. 
and it literally took me so long to do in the console i abandoned it and wrote the same terraform and ran it in about literally two minutes flat yeah. so it is it is a time saver even if you're prototyping um, okay. and then the advantage is is once you've once you can trust your prototype and you go, actually, this is what I want to build, you can check that in and then you can just apply that as many times as you want. Right. So that's one of the other sort of benefits of Terraform in that once you've described your system as code, you can then go, right, I want five of these. I want two de development environments, I want a test environment, I want a stage and I want a production. So you can just yep. run it five times, bang. And they're all identical, yep. which is where the real power comes in versus trying to, I think we've all worked at companies where, um, people used to set stuff up by hand using like these run books in Word documents and every environment's got its own personality okay. because it's all been set up slightly differently. So you completely Terraform yeah. eradicates that because it's actually automating that process. Everything's fully identical. Um, it's a really powerful concept. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so you've built everything or, or seemingly at the start on terraform has anything else kind of intertwined into that you know we speak about java we speak about go but anything else meshed together with that or how does it look so basically terraform is the tool we use to describe all of our infrastructure so and set up like like i said the system um where java and go come in is we've got a microservice platform so we write we originally started writing our microservices in Java and then about a year in, we decided to switch over to Go, mm -hmm. which seems to be a great decision. We haven't kind of looked back from that. Yeah. So these microservices are, are sitting there running in Docker containers. But what Terraform does is Terraform will, like currently we run in AWS ECS, Elastic Container Service. So Terraform will basically create the ETS cluster and the task definitions to say, run this Docker container on five of these, run this Docker container on three of these. And then um, that will basically create all of that in AWS and AWS will pull down your different services and run them. Um, okay. So that's kind of where the, the two worlds meet. Gotcha. Uh, you, you mentioned Java to go one year in, great decision. Why do you think that was a good decision? Uh, it's quite a number of reasons. So. Um, I think Java is obviously a really good language. Like people beat on it, but it, it, it works really well and a lot of people use it. But where I think Go is is just a lot more better suited to um, a microservice architecture and deploying into the cloud is it's so much more simple. So when, you work, when you've got like, um, say, 100 microservices, for example, in all mm -hmm. different code repos, because of the way you write Go code, it's hard to write what I call magic code. Mm -hmm. All the dependencies, all the source code for all the dependencies is in with the code. Um, you can't so easily do some magic using annotations and reflections and some of these tricks. So you can literally, as a developer, you open up a Go repo, you can walk through every line of code and understand exactly how a project works, which is invaluable when you might be working on one project today, different one tomorrow, different one the day after versus java where obviously you can write code in that way in java yep. but people tend to use you've got like magic options in java so people tend to leverage those so i think a lot of the listeners will probably be familiar with java projects where you have like a class with six java annotations on 
And then when you run it, you've got like a full web server. And then when you try and work out how the hell that's happening, it's pulling in 2000 jars from Maven. And then it's like deep in there somewhere is actually where all the magic's happening. And then good luck trying to debug that. You like spend two weeks trying to work out how that's working. So I think the time from picking a project to being able to work on it is lessened by Go because it, the code's simpler. And it just yeah. feels like Go is just gets out of your way a lot more and allows you just to be creative. Um, and then the other benefits are things like you typically see the start times quicker. So the, mm -hmm. uh, our test runs tend to run faster, which adds up over the day because when you're writing yep. code, you run your tests. The deployment artifacts a lot smaller. So when you um, run a Java program, you've got to deploy the whole JVM in a dock container, which is typically say around a gigabyte. So when you deploy a new version, you've got to download that gigabyte image and run it. Yep. Versus Go, where you can get away with just a compiled binary on, a, on an Alpine or something, which is like you know 20 to 30 megs. So, And you can also typically, your programs will use a lot less memory in, in runtime. Nice. So we typically see from Java services use around a gig of memory just as a rough average, whereas in Go, it's probably more like the 128 to 256 megs. So you can run a lot more Go code on the same compute versus yep. Java to yep. get more bang for your buck. Um, and uh, I, th I think just understanding it a little bit more, speed and simplicity of the go terraforms it can just get everyone online quite quickly it, that that's what it feels like it feels more fluid yeah it's definitely i think simplicity is the key so yeah. some people when they first see go it looks a lot more for bows because there's not some of these more advanced constructs in the language so the code can look a little bit more for bows but that's actually the good part as well as i was saying before because it yep. forces you to write everything down in the code so you can come to a project understand exactly what's happening yep. so actually when you get your head around that you people sort of first look at go sometimes and go oh there's a lot of code here just do something in java yep. this would be tiny but when they actually get into it they're like actually this is so much better like i can see what's going on yep. it's so much simpler it feels like really lightweight it can pass so fast it's like a joy to use yeah um, so it's kind of soon like gets you on gets you on side. Uh, and and do you think a lot of companies will look to make that move? It seems like they've, a they've lot done that already, by the way. But do you think a lot more? It looks like it. Um, you probably know from your experience as a recruiter what the kind of profile of developers people are looking at. So maybe you yep. could talk about how you've seen that shift. But from my point of view. Um, from what I hear, it looks like a lot of people are moving to Go um, yeah. because it fits the cloud so well and Microsoft's architecture so well for the reasons I've kind of stated. So, Yeah, I think that transition coming from a, a strongly typed background, I think people can make that transition quite easy. Uh, and I see companies, so developers, for example, but I see companies make that same shift as well. Okay. Um, especially, I think, startups that want to build a product, get something to market with speed, they can hire from this strongly typed pool, but they can get a product out the door quite quick. That's why I think it's being used. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So with 
our kind of hiring strategy, we don't put any emphasis on any go experience. We just make we just test that someone's a good engineer because our philosophy is if you're a good engineer, because being a good engineer is really about problem solving. It's about going, okay, I've got this problem. How do I solve that? How do I tell the computer how to solve that in software? Effectively, that's what you're doing. The software is kind of irrelevant in that you could, if you're a good engineer, write that program in any language, if you had enough time, you might be able to write it quicker in Go if you use it every day or quicker in Java or whatever. But I almost think that's, that's kind of irrelevant. That's just how you're telling the computer to solve the problem. Um, so that's how we kind of approach it from the experience point of view. I know some companies don't do that. They're like at least X years in this language, X years in that language, which yeah. I kind of think is a bit of the wrong direction to be looking at it. Because um, we've had a lot of people join who've never written a line of Go or Java, and they're some of our best engineers now because really? they they just they good they're good at problem solving, and that's what it's all about. And then when you couple that with the language like Go. Like if you give them a better tool to do that job, then they it empowers them. They go, okay, I know how to solve problems. Go is a really cool language. I can do it easily. And you know, they kind of go from there. So what problem do you think is a good problem to give to someone in an interview process? Interviews are one of those things at the moment that everyone's talking about, whether it's a test, online or homework, whether it's system design, Mm -hmm. algos data structures what what do you think or what does form three think is a really good way to look at someone's problem solving capabilities so how we approach that is we give someone a coding test to do in go and we 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 say to them as part of that like it's a takeaway test they can do it in their own time yeah we say to them as part of that tell us your go experience but the reason for them telling us that is if they do something that um, is maybe not Go idiomatic or there's a better way of doing it in Go, we kind of overlook that because we go, okay, well, this person's never used Go before, so they did X, Y, Z, but actually that's not really the way you do it in Go, but we'll overlook that because we just want to see how their mind's working. So how have they approached this problem? How have they laid their code out? Yeah. Um, and I think from that, you can you can gather a lot of information so when they go through to um, the, well, say face-to-face -face interview, the virtual face-to-face -face interview over Zoom, we then walk through their test with them and we approach it from the point of view that imagine I'm pairing with you on your test. So I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's right because no codes, there's no kind of one way of doing it thing. Let's just discuss how you've written this function. Like, why did you do it this way? Why did you pass the error back like this? You know. What was your thinking here? Did you think about that by doing this, someone using this function wouldn't be able to do X or wouldn't be able to handle this error? And yep. just get them thinking and then see their thought process. And then if they say, oh, yeah, well, I didn't actually consider that, I would change it to do this. Now you've pointed that out to me. So yep. I think you can gather a lot of information by like having that half hour dialogue with someone, talking through some code. Yep. And because they've written it, they're familiar with it. So that's kind of how we approach it and try and dig into someone's mindset and try and work out nice. whether they're like a good problem solver. But nice. it, is, it is like a really hard thing to interview for. So yeah, um, it, it is. They're, they're tough. They're, they're really tough. Um, this 
goes back to some of the Terraform stuff because I think there'll be a lot of people listening to this wanting to hear more about uh, the Terraform stuff, your book, obviously. Uh, but I think a good place to start is, um, and we'll be doing something on this around serverless soon, is uh, so a company's thinking about Terraform. How do you build a business case for using Terraform? How do you understand a use case for Terraform? So I think the the sort of main business case for Terraform is going back to some of the reasons we spoke about earlier. So if you are building um, software in the cloud or using lots of APIs, using third-party services, then Terraform is probably something you should be looking at because how Terraform works is Terraform itself is like a difference engine. So all Terraform knows how to do is get the world from one state to another state and then you can plug different providers into that. So a provider is something that understands, say, AWS or GCP or some like MailChimp, um, some DNS provider or like Cloudflare or whatever it is. So you can plug all these providers in and then you can have one project that spans all of these things. So if your system is doing some DNS in Cloudflare, um, starting something up in AWS and starting something up in GCP, you can describe that world in a single project and check that into source control, which is a key thing. And then you can reproduce that as many times as you want for all of your environments. Gotcha. And then because it's now in source control, if you want to make a change, you can do what you normally do in source control. So you create a branch, have a play around, so you can maybe test something out, apply yep. that branch to one of your environments, check whether that's good or not. If you decide actually that's rubbish, you just revert the branch back to the main line yep. and then the environment will just revert back because Terraform will just apply the code again. So I think um, from a business point of view, it's a bit of a no-brainer because it's such a time saver mm-hmm. um, when you're working with all these different systems and kind of gluing them together, which is kind of what a lot of modern engineering is. It's taking... It's like taking all these Lego bricks and gluing them together. Yep. And almost Terraform's a place where you can do that that gluing together yep. in an automated fashion rather than having to manually like set that up or write a script yourself that sets it all up, which can be prone to problems because um, when you write a script, it might have a bug in it or it might not run the same thing every time. It won't handle the case where if someone goes behind your back and changes you know, Cloudflare or one of the things you're using, yep. your script might not realize and then put it back again. Um, Is it quite easy to accelerate and raise in teams? Let's just say new teams that haven't used Terraform. Is it easy to get people online up to speed? Or what or what, what could be the challenges with that? I think it it is pretty easy to... Use so first of all, is it easy to adopt? I would say yes, it is. It's very uh, simple the way I think it's simple to to use in, in most cases. So the basic blocks of Terraform are literally a tiny block of code that the header is like the resource names. Say you want an S3 bucket, mm-hmm. and have a set of parameters to say I want to name the bucket this, and I want to use encryption or whatever you want to do. So you could almost read Terraform, having never looked at it, 
and work out what that's going to do. It's going to create the SS3 bucket with these settings. It's kind of fairly obvious. Yeah. Um, so I think an engineer could learn it easily in a day and be pretty good at it to be able to glue things together and build systems because it's okay. It's fairly simple to use. Um, and then as far as adopting it, so one of the things that I've covered in the book is how to um, take an existing system and move it into Terraform so Terraform can manage that. So if nice. you basically create the system by hand, how do you then pull that into Terraform? So there's ways you can do that where you can start describing the system in Terraform and then you can import your resources into Terraform and then Terraform will then take ownership of it and then sync it up to the code. Nice. So there is a pathway there for someone who, if you've already built a system like outside of Terraform, you can move that into Terraform without having to re rebuild everything. Nice. Bef before we love you and leave you, what, what other key takeaways can we get from your book, your Terraform book? Okay, so my book is designed to take someone who's never, ever used Terraform yep. all the way through, like, elaborating in the business cases and why you should use Terraform, why it's important, why you should think about it, all the way through to the point where you're going to be proficient at using it, know all of the constructs, uh, know how to import resources into it, uh, move state around to so move things from one Terraform project to another. So basically be at the point where you're fairly proficient. But I didn't want it to be like a, a thousand page Bible that was really off-putting. So I've left out some of the the mega advanced stuff, it's just meant to take you from zero to, I kind of call it um, beginner to master. So what yep. I kind of call the master level where you're provisioned for 99% of use cases. Yep. Okay. And uh, obviously, uh, a lot of people have seen in the press, you guys have received some funding. That's fabulous. That keeps the lights on. Yeah. <laughs> so to speak. Um Obviously, we we don't want any spoilers. We're not looking for that. But I guess from a technical standpoint, is is there anything to come that's exciting? Or will you be starting to, I guess, emerge more technologies into the fold? Um, so one of the one of the key drivers at the moment is moving from i think if you're talking purely from a technology point of view is yeah. we are looking to move from ecs to kubernetes nice that's one of the questions we get kind of most in interviews on why we're on ecs because and the reason is i guess when we started the build kubernetes wasn't the obvious container scheduler winner that it is today yeah. so we're in the process now of making that journey to move into kubernetes which is an exciting build for us um, to move away from ECS specific tech. Um, so why, yeah, I think why, why is the why is container the go to? Sorry, why is Kubernetes the go to at the moment? Do you think? I think it's 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 basically the fact that it's got the, the large majority of the community behind it, so it's just running away with. Um, features, ease of use, and a lot of the problems are solved in Kubernetes. So if, for example, you compare it to ECS, um, we're at the point where we're probably quite advanced users of ECS with the setup we've got. But if we wanted to solve a problem, so say, for example, we want to do canary deployments, 
we would have to work that out for ourselves in ECS using like hand rolled stuff. Okay. Um, because AWS don't support that out of the box. Whereas if you move to Kubernetes, basically someone's written something for Kubernetes to do that. So it would be a matter of installing some stuff and it just work. So there's so many problems where in Kubernetes it's it's just a solved problem. Like it's there's so speed. many reasons. Yeah, and speed and you get more bang for your buck in terms of how much you can run. Um, it's just kind of become the de facto standard for how to run containers. So I think nice. from a technology point of view, we just need to need to move on to it and, and embrace the community. Nice. Okay. If if anyone's listening, um, well, we've got a thousand engineers uh, that subscribe to us across all different channels. So if you are listening, if you're interested in sitting on a beach somewhere, uh, being in Spain poolside, doing some go, working with Mr. Terraform, working with cloud native payments, come and talk to the guys at cloud, sorry, come and talk to the guys at Form 3. They've yeah. recently got a new round of funding. Check them out. There's going to be some links that are attached here. Reach out to Kevin as well. Uh, this isn't promo for him, but his book's online. If you'd like to go and see that, it's also on his LinkedIn page. Kevin, uh, I just want to say a big thank you for letting us into the world of Form 3, letting us into the world of cloud native payments, a bit more on Go, a bit more on Terraform. Just want to say a big thanks. Cool. Thanks a lot, Elliot. Pleasure. And stay tuned for some more fun. Thanks, guys. Hey guys, thanks for watching this episode. Uh, massively appreciate you listening and checking in with us. If you want to find out more about us and what we're doing, please check us out on social media. What we're trying to do at Engineers is build a community to drive knowledge, sharing and experiences. On Twitter, we can be found at engineers.io. It's no underscore. We've also got a website, which is engineers.io. These links will all be posted in the description. Any feedback and comments are massively appreciated. We're always looking to improve on where we can. Thanks, guys.